why it's Saturday. I hope. I mean, maybe. I don't hope. It just is an accident of the calendar or a consequence of when you listen to this, the Saturday show, a show where we on the gist bring you a best of all time and a best from the past week. As I've been doing on the Saturday show, I include Not Even Mad within the Peachfish Pantheon of products and productions. So I will be bringing you the segment that guest hosts Lara Bazelon and David French and I recorded. The topic was the conviction of Oath Keeper, Stuart Rhodes, also Kelly Meggs and a few others, but Rhodes gets most of the attention. That's what happened when you brand yourself so successfully with an eye patch. And, and what I really love about trial lawyer Lara Bazelon and civil libertarian David French is they both really went hard at the government's conviction. Not that they have any any patience for a jerk like Stuart Rhodes, but you know, they pointed out that the bar to get this seditious conspiracy conviction wasn't that high. And I, as the moderate, was, or the centrist, or whatever I was, played the role, my unaccustomed role, of disagreeing with them both. They were both on the same side on that one. So that is a good segment for Not Even Mad. If you liked it, if you're interested in hearing more of the show with uh, not those two hosts, though someday they will come back, please subscribe directly where you get your podcasts. It helps everyone at Peachfish so immensely. So that is the show from this week. The show from all time, actually, is a season two of The Gist production. It was my interview about Victor Boot. Victor Boot is the merchant of death who was recently traded, swapped in a prisoner swap for Brittany Griner. And we talked to, I think, the best person to talk about Boot, Douglas Farah author of Merchant of Death, Money, Guns, Planes, and the Man Who Makes War Possible. We uh, conducted that interview in July of this year. It became very relevant on Thursday of this week. Enjoy both of these interviews. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. 
That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to Not Even Mad. Here is Edward L. Tarpley, defense attorney to Stuart Rhodes, right after the Oath Keeper leader was convicted of seditious conspiracy by a Washington, D.C. federal jury. We feel like that um, uh, we presented a case which uh, showed through evidence and testimony that uh, Mr. Rhodes did not commit the crime of seditious conspiracy. Uh, There was no evidence introduced to indicate that there was a plan to uh, attack the Capitol. Rhodes is the Justice Department's biggest scalp thus far. He and his oathkeeper co-defendant, Kelly Meggs, were the first to be convicted of conspiracy in the January 6th attacks. Nearly everyone else went down on far less serious charges of civil disorder, assaults, remaining in a restricted area, and my favorite, illegal parading. And it's not just any old conspiracy, it's the really bad kind, a seditious conspiracy, and that means a plot to overthrow the government. Rhodes is facing a far longer prison sentence, a maximum of 20 years, although it's likely to be much less than those meted out to the few convicted of violently assaulting the police. And yet, Stuart Rhodes didn't go inside the Capitol building. He didn't order any Oath Keepers to enter the Capitol building. And as you just heard his lawyer say, there wasn't any evidence that he formulated a specific plan of attack. Lest you think that I'm apologizing for this race-baiting schmuck, who I frankly think is really gross, I could promise you that I'm not. He won't be missed by any of us who live in the world of the sane. But the verdict against Stuart Rhodes unsettles me as someone who has defended people in federal court, looking at extremely long prison terms, just because I think about how relatively easy it would be to prove almost any case of seditious conspiracy. I say that knowing that the government doesn't bring them that often, but they could, and the people that they could bring them against worries me. For example, people protesting in Black Lives Matter. So David, you're a lawyer and a civil libertarian. Are you at all concerned about this verdict? I'm going to say that it does concern me. Uh, As we just went through, I'm a big believer in free speech, (laughs) including speech that I'm really going to dislike. And one of the things uh, that is abundantly clear about American free speech law is you can advocate for the overthrow of the government. That's protected by the Constitution of the United States. You can sit here, you you can engage in a lot of speech designed to motivate people to overthrow the government. Um... There's even famous case involving somebody who said during the height of the Vietnam War, if I'm drafted and I get a rifle, first thing I'm going to do is shoot President Johnson. Protected speech, protected speech. So there's a lot of protection for the ability to criticize the government and to criticize even the American system itself and to advocate for the the overthrow of the American system. And there are good reasons why we do that, you know, um, the the famous abolitionist Frederick Douglass called free speech the moral renovator of society and government. Uh, it's called in the dread of tyrants. And this is when he was um, asking for Boston to be opened up to abolitionist speech. And so the for, for this country to be open to internal critique, as it must, and it's 
one of the only ways we can improve as a people, we have to be open to internal critique in the sharpest of ways. Now, when that turns into aiding and abetting actual criminal activity, that's when you're going to draw the line. And would this case have been brought but for the January 6th attack? And I think the answer to that is no. No, it would not have been brought but for the January 6th attack. Well, then you might be listening and say, well, but there's the January 6th attack, David. <laughs> that Doesn't that change things? Doesn't this mean that there was something more than just posturing and LARPing and all of this? That there was actual planning. Yes, maybe. Yes, maybe. And, and, and that's, but I'm not yes for sure on seditious conspiracy. And I, and I do think that on appeal, the really interesting question is going to be, did the prosecution, prosecution sufficiently tie A to B? Did it sufficiently tie all of this talk about overthrowing the government, all of everything, to the actual violent attack on January 6th? If the reality is that the, the, the attack on January 6th and all of the alleged sedition conspiracy, they were sort of more like two ships heading in the same direction, but one ship went into the Capitol and the other one didn't. I think that that's not seditious conspiracy. But if that there was a sufficient tie between all of the alleged planning and the actual entry of the ship, so to speak, into the Capitol, then you've got seditious conspiracy. But it is not, I, I to me, it is not open and shut at all that this is actual seditious conspiracy. And I do think people who have free speech concerns should, in fact, be paying very close attention to this and, and holding the DOJ's feet to the fire in showing that this was actual, what we had was actual conspiracy and not just inflammatory speech. So it does seem that they had some plans. And I think what reading this as uh, from my jury box of my, you know, uh, breakfast table while I read the coverage. It did seem what the government was alleging and proved, according to the jury, is that there was something of a free-floating conspiracy that didn't exactly say the exact form the conspiracy would take. But I do have to say in this case that there's a we have phrases like, you know, this is a perfect example or a classic example or the textbook example of the law. And the reason that we have to have those phrases is that sometimes we convict someone on an interpretation of the law that might be other than textbook. So maybe that's what happened here. Perhaps it is not the perfectly buttoned down example of a textbook uh, a seditious conspiracy charge, but certainly good enough and close enough and plausible enough. And let's also say the jury wasn't just railroaded. They picked and choose between different charges and some of the defendants got off on right. some of the charges. And I think all of the defendants got off on at least one charge, except maybe one who was only charged with one or two things. So I think it was a proper application of the law. So this is interesting. I feel like I agree with you and I agree with David for different reasons. So I feel like what David is saying is that when he talks about these two ships that are headed in the same direction, but to dock in different places, that there just isn't a perfect match between the amorphous conspiracy that these gas bags were ranting and raving about while they were stuffing garlic bread in their mouths at the Olive Garden and the actual overthrow or attempted overthrow of the Capitol. And what you're saying is, yes, and the evidence was absolutely good enough for two ships in the same direction, two separate ports. And I think you're both right. And that's exactly what makes me nervous. It's how easy it is 
to prove a case like this when the idea of seditious conspiracy is so amorphous that it doesn't actually have to be a specific plan that was designed and placed into effect by the same actors. And federal law absolutely allows that and always has, which is why this has always made me nervous. I just feel like the potential for overreach is enormous, especially with precedents like Stuart Rhodes, who's just this odious human being. And as David says, these cases often turn on odious people saying and doing odious things. So who's next after him is kind of where my mind goes. And maybe it's not someone so odious, but someone who the government really and truly despises, and they can do this amorphous mismatch and get away with it. And to David's point about the Court of Appeals, I think it's going to be a slam dunk upholding the verdict for the government on appeal in the DC Circuit, because the statute, at least as I read it, is so permissive. Yeah, except so permissive and so easy to get a conviction except you have to have a set of circumstances where there's actually sedition and when there is actually or, you know, far down the road of an overthrow of the government and a person loudly and vocally and over and over again advocating for it. What I suggest is that if at the time someone said, uh, I think President Johnson should be shot, if then President Johnson were shot And it turned out that the guy saying, I think President Johnson should be shot, had a group called the President Johnson Shooters who trained for the general idea of shooting President Johnson. I bet that case law might be different. Oh, for sure. I mean, if you actually have, if if you can actually outline the conspiracy and the attempt and Absolutely. Um, the the question. It seems close, like that happened here. Well, but see, this is where some of Laura's facts are interesting. That he didn't go inside the Capitol be- building. He didn't order the Oath Keepers to enter the Capitol. He didn't formulate a specific plan of attack. So normally, if you're talking about, say, in a a bank robbery case, for example, where you actually prosecute somebody for an attempt before there is uh, an actual robbery, let's say, for example, then you're often going to have evidence of. We have, there's our specific plan of attack. Here was the, we're doing it in such and such time. Here's our, here is the, here is the A, the B, the C, the D, the E, and the F. And what ends up happening on January 6th, and look, I am not saying he doesn't deserve to be convicted. I am saying that this, there are elements of this story and elements of this case that are pinging my civil liberty side that say, there are parts of this that are that are worrisome. And so if you yell about that you you want to take the country back, you've got your weapons cache, you've got a bunch of your guys there, and you you've really put them in this position where, in my view, the question was really realistically more, was this going to happen no matter what? Or did the Oath Keepers who were there because of all of the things that he said then join into this mob surge. And the fact that they joined into this mob surge, did that mean the seditious conspiracy was underway and sort of their concrete attempt to complete it? Or was this something where they were there venting, yelling, screaming, LARPing, and then the mob surge occurs? And you know, and under both circumstances, they should be prosecuted. So nobody's sitting here saying that there shouldn't be a prosecution, particularly of the people who entered the building, right? But 
under what what is what is that prosecution? When with Stuart Rhodes, how much responsibility does he bear for the stack that is was taking that was going in there? Was this stack going in there no matter what, or did the stack go in there because the mob surged? How much does that matter? Um, and because of the gravity of a seditious conspiracy charge. I want to see the Court of Appeals flesh this out with extreme particularity. And I would just say the R&P and LARPing should stand for riot planning, not role playing. <laughs> right. That's what they were doing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we are now going to move on to last but not least topic number three, the Twitter files starring Matt Taibbi and Elon Musk. See you back in a moment. For 11 years, Victor Boot has been sitting in a U.S. prison known as the Merchant of Death or the Lord of War. His 2008 arrest was a major coup for U.S. law enforcement, who is tracking this arms dealer and terrorist supporter, or at least supplier, for years and years. Douglas Farah, longtime Washington Post reporter who is now president of IBI Consultants, LLC, wrote about Boot and the international chase for him in Merchant of Death, Money, Guns, Planes, and the Man Who Makes War Possible. And the reason Victor Boot is in the news is he's being offered as a possible bargaining chip or trading partner for detained American Brittany Griner. Doug, welcome to The Gist. Thank you very much. When did you first hear about and then start investigating Victor Boot? I first heard about Victor Boot when I was covering the wars in Liberia as the Washington Post West Africa bureau chief, and there were all of these reports of these of the these Russian airplanes landing with weapons, and, and it was, this was a particularly brutal war. If you'll recall, there were child soldiers. There was the massive use of amputations of arms, legs of civilians, populations by both Charles Taylor's troops and the insurgency he was supporting next door in Sierra Leone, all revolving around diamonds. And that was pretty alarming. And then we began talking to some UN investigators who had been hearing the same thing and had the facility to go out to some of the airfields where these planes had been landing and realized it was the same aircraft landing again and again. And from there, we started looking and we kept hearing the person's name was Victor. We, you know, Victor was this, Victor was that. We didn't know who Victor was uh, initially, of course. And then eventually we began to put the pieces together and then began seeing uh, him appearing and reporting. I think the first public mention of him was uh, in the floor of the British Parliament when one of the parliamentarians stood up and called him the merchant of death because the Brits had been tracking him. And that's where he got his name from, his moniker from. Did you at first, when you heard about Victor, think he was a real person or an amalgam like a Kaiser Soze type? I wasn't sure because there were a lot of strange people floating around West Africa in the diamond weapons world. Like we were, you know, we there was one aircraft unrelated to Victor Booth that had belonged to the Seattle Supersonics that was delivering air. And when we tracked the airplane, we're like, wow, okay, where did, <laughs> how did that happen, right? Um, so there were all of these sort of fantastical things happening in a very murky and bizarre world. Uh, so we weren't sure, I wasn't sure initially, but then we, you know, it became clear that there was one guiding force on a lot of these weapons coming in. When you began pulling the string on boot, what did you find beyond Liberia? Well, what we found initially was that he was the provider to some of the most vicious, I would say, warlords, gangs that were taking over Central West Africa at the time. As you recall, the Cold War ended and the sort of the mantra was, we have this new era of peace. And, and it turned out not to be that way. It turned out that people who could take over a diamond mine 
uh, make enough money doing that to buy more weapons, could take over more diamond mines, and the brutality surrounding that, and the phenomenon of child soldiers where you, you know, abduct an eight-year-old, burn his village, make him kill his own parents often, and then that psychologically traumatized person is then sent in, out to war on your behalf is a tremendously brutalizing force. I mean, it's just, just you know, in dealing with these kids, the, the impact of what we were seeing, Sierra Leone, Liberia, Democratic Republic of Congo, also happening in Angola, but I didn't cover the Angola part of it. But we were like, holy cow, like you have to be some sort of madman, one like Charles Taylor to generate all this intuitive just dump weapons into these facilities where traditionally the killing had been done by hunting rifles and machetes so if you start introducing mass amounts of ak-47s uh rocket propelled grenades light anti-tank weapons into these wars the the human cost goes up you know many many fold we all know that the crime was putting weapons in the arms of people who would kill children, but it seems like you could argue maybe he was okay falsifying a manifest or breaking some sort of, uh, maybe breaking some sort of bureaucratic code. That is a little less than merchant of death to me. Yes, I think what struck where the name merchant of death came from, it became clear that it was the single network supplying multiple wars and not only multiple wars, both sides of multiple wars. I mean, the most fascinating case was in the Democratic Republic of Congo, which was Zaire at the time when the longtime dictator Mobutu was getting all his weapons from Victor Boot while Boot was supplying the army that was about to overthrow him. And as the army that was overthrowing him swept into power, he flew out on a plane that belonged to Victor Boot. It was like, wow. You know? And when we asked people like, why didn't you kill Victor Boot if he was supplying your enemy? And one guy said, and it was perfect, you don't kill the mailman. He was the person who could who could deliver and he could the fact he was delivering to everybody but he's also delivering to us you know you don't shoot the mailman how does uh, victor boot get involved in south american wars or the farc or colombia well there was eventually because of his activity in belgium he had set up a, a hub of operation out of belgium the belgians eventually got an interpol red notice against him uh issued against him for his arrest so he went back to moscow uh, where he was under the protection he had been a creature he was a former soviet intelligence officer when the Soviet Union falls, he sort of goes on his own, builds this big empire. And at this time, in the early 2000s, uh, Putin was beginning to reconsolidate the intelligence structures in Russia back into something more consolidated, more coherent than it had been. So they're pulling Viktor Putin anyway. They, they're cutting his leash a little bit to do his own operations, not to do state operations. And he had been flying after after 9-11. He had been flying into uh, Afghanistan. He had been flying into Iraq. He had been doing all these things with the U.S. knowledge and permission, making tons of money from the U.S., making tons of money from the Brits. And then suddenly he was like, oh, he's a bad guy. Okay. So he goes back to Moscow for protection. And I think basically he just gets bored. He, he, people loved, he described him as loving to be in the field. Like he would fly his helicopter into the mountains of Congo and go camping and game hunting. He could fly his helicopters wherever he wanted. And he was, he liked that. Being stuck in Moscow, especially in the wintertime, was not much fun. And so I think when the opportunity came up to deal with what turned out to be DEA informants, but what he thought were FARC representatives, I think he was champing at the bit to get out of Russia and do something fun again. So he never actually flew weapons to the FARC? It was all uh, a ruse set up by government agents? It was a groups that the, the DEA had used on a similar operation against another big uh, weapons merchant out of Spain. And they used the same basic uh, team to go to, uh, after Victor, offering what they, you know, what the, the 
it was easier to prove in the case of someone like the FARC, some group like the FARC in Colombia, which is a designated terrorist organization that had killed Americans and kidnapped Americans. So the offense, if you can, if the person wants to kill Americans, knowingly wants to kill Americans, and wants to sell weapons to a terrorist, a designated terrorist organization, and the FARC was one of only two organizations in the world that was both a major drug trafficking organization designated and a terrorist organization designated, that would provide the legal way to put him out of business. So are, you're giving me the sense, is this the case, that U.S. foreign policy was to get this uh, chess piece off the chessboard? It would be very hard to do that or much more complicated to do that in the, in the main area of his operations, which was West Africa. You'd have to rely on international law, maybe, or Interpol or The Hague or whatever. So if the U.S. just got him in a sting involving Colombia and the FARC, it would be cleaner. And that's essentially what happened. Uh, I would say there's a little more to it than that in the sense that Boot, through an intermediary, was looking for the FARC. They didn't invent the FARC as his clients. He was looking for okay. them. He wasn't, he wasn't entrapped. Right. He wasn't yeah. entrapped. And, and because he was looking for them and they, they got one of his informants who had also worked on the other case, had talked to the guy who was looking for the FARC. They'd wait a minute. Okay, here's a chance maybe to get him into something we could actually we could actually work with. But he he had actively looked for the FARC and was offer, try, offering them weapons before they dived into it. So it sounds like he's making a lot of money. He's capitalizing on the fact that the Soviet Union has uh, fallen apart. He has access to the means to supply weapons. He does supply weapons. Why would Putin care and want to defend the guy or, or rescue the guy, essentially? What was any of that in Russia's interest? It's, it's a good question. And one I, I don't fully understand because I don't think I know enough about the Russian side to know that. We know that he came out of the Soviet state out of the Soviet intelligence structures, which are very dear to Putin's heart, obviously. I think the fact that you had a Russian that was that is in U.S. custody for crimes of, or for the actions of selling Russian weapons abroad is probably somewhat hurtful to how the Russians view what happened. And I think, and his wife, uh, Victor Booth's wife, has waged a long and very effective campaign in Russia portraying this as entrapment, that he was innocent, that he didn't do any of the things they said he did. And she's been at it for a long time. The the Russian Duma, the parliament has, you know, passed declarations saying, you know, free Victor Boot. So I think it's a culmination of a way to get him back. I personally don't think that he's particularly operative in the weapons world anymore. It's a world that's changed too much since he's been in prison. But I think that it's a way to bring someone back that's been sort of a sore spot for Russia for a long time. Probably not a, a hugely high priority for the Russians, but if they can get that for something, you know, especially now as their eyes are being blackened in Ukraine and stuff, they probably view it as, a, as an option. Is Victor Boot as well known in Russia as Brittany Griner is in the U.S.? Probably not in terms of sustained you know, attention, but people knew who he was definitely. When he was arrested, it was a really big deal in Moscow. And Russia moved a lot of levers. He was arrested in Thailand and they moved a lot of levers to keep, get him not to be extradited, to get him sent back to Russia, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that from the beginning, he's been, yeah, pretty well known and probably maybe not the same as, as Greiner, but certainly he's not an unknown subject there. So that implies to me that maybe what Putin wants isn't the what he represents, what Boot represents in terms of uh, operation or bringing uh, someone in from the cold who, you know, still has value to them. But it would be a 
PR coup. It would be a way right. to give a little bit of a black eye to the United States, but also help Putin's own standing as uh, having saved this. Perhaps people see him as a hero or at least someone unjustly detained. I think that's exactly right. I don't think they can plug him in, in and play him in the, their own world of weapon sales now because this 15 years is built on trust that world is is built on relationships he no longer has they're not really they don't really care about west africa you know all of those things have sort of moved on to in in the years since he's been he's now he was actually arrested in in 2008 so we're talking you know 14 15 years since he's been out of action so the headline of your politico piece was opinion take the deal Brittany Griner in exchange for the Merchant of Death. And the headline in USA Today by a guy named Rob Zach, that's his uh, nickname, or I guess nom de DA. I help capture Russia's Merchant of Death. We must not swap him for Brittany Griner. I want to take a step back. I know that this was proposed in the media, but do either of you guys know that this is really on the table? The actual deal is something other than, I don't know, an idea that maybe smart people have? I don't know what Rob Zach knows. He's a friend, and I respect his opinion. I, I, you know, I we we've been friends for since we started working together on some of the Victor Booth stuff. Um, the only thing I know for sure is that the Russian officials have confirmed it. The Russians are talking about it. How seriously it's been undertaken uh, on the U.S. side, I, I don't know. There's a lot of reporting in Politico and other sort of reputable organizations that this is on the table. Probably more of a two for one with uh, some of the other U.S. prisoners being held in in Russia for boot, not just a one to one deal. Um, but uh, but how serious that is, I don't know. What I want to know is just I want to put what Rob Zach's central argument is, is that it would uh, incentivize not so much that one is more, he's so morally reprehensible, we can't give him away, but the incentivization would be things like further detaining Americans so that Putin can, you know, get his, uh, get his people free, or at least expand his own PR agenda. And that it would send a really bad message to other bad actors in the world about, you know, escape hatches should they get caught and therefore maybe they will continue with their nefarious deeds. What do you think of those? I think that that is, a, you know, a strong argument. I don't I don't think it's it's nonsense at all. I think in the case of Brittany, because unlike everyone else, I mean, she was going to play professional basketball. She wasn't passing through. She wasn't doing you know, a tourist thing. She wasn't on an excursion. She wasn't just going out. She was there at the invitation of a Russian team to play basketball in Russia. So I think that p- puts her in a different category than some of the other people who, while unjustly taken, were may you know they weren't there with explicit reasons at the invitation of a Russian organization. And I think that's what makes Britain a bit a bit different. So I don't think. I, and I think as I, as I argued in my piece at this point. Boot has no utility in the field of the brutality he he was involved in. I think that some of the pieces that have been written have sort of glossed over the his past, and I think I tried hard not to do that in, in my piece. Explaining exactly. well, I think that's I think that's what gave it a lot of ballast. That if Doug Farah is saying who's chronicled him more than anyone and has detailed his misdeeds more than anyone, if even he says that this is an acceptable trade, we should listen. You have standing. Well, thank you. Yes. Well, I, I, you know, that the point. I think that it's someone like like Brittany is at. I think probably at, at risk. Her professional career is going to, you know, be endangered going forward. It seemed to me there was conditions that made her situation different from from everyone else's, and that giving up boot. Disp- 
despite giving Putin a victory of some sort, it's not going to matter much in the U.S. The U.S. isn't aware of Victor Boot, and they're not going to say in the people's hair, oh, my God, we let him go. I think the Russians will trump it up and may say, you know, we want something. Okay, you know, in their world, they're going to do that with anything they get. Um, so it seems to me, in a hum- in purely humanitarian terms, that it's is, is something one should do. Um, but I think that people like Rob Zakasev who put their people on the line to get the arrest and all done, I I I I, I understand that argument completely. I just think that the other outweighs it a bit. What should we look for in terms of? developments, next shoes to drop, indications that this trade, in fact, might take place? I think that, you know, at some point, the U.S. is going to have to address it. As far as I know, I haven't seen any U.S. officials saying yes or no, or maybe we're interested. I've only seen the Russian side saying that. Um, I think a lot will depend on how the DEA and NSC weighs in with the Biden administration on this, if there's a, what their take is on what the cost-benefit analysis would be. Um, and obviously, Brittany has a lot of people putting pressure on the other side. Uh, so I think, uh, you know, I think the real thing will be one public comment and two, if people are watching the Marion, uh, Indiana facility where boot is, if there's something, a lot of activity there, <laughs> uh, then right, right. He, he might be, he might be getting ready to, to head out. You know, his lawyer is not, his, his lawyer is very adamant that they want it to happen, but it's in reading what he has said carefully myself, I don't see any indication that he's indicating that there are serious movement in that direction. Might an indication come from an off-the-record source that could alert those of us paying attention, okay, this is real and movement in this case? I would guess so. And I think that probably what I've seen in other cases in the past is usually you find out from the from the prison warden that their prisoners are now being prepared for, for transportation out. But I think because this case is so relatively high profile. I would imagine that there will be leaks in DC about it and see what's, uh, see, see, at least as, as it becomes possible. They, and people can either leak it to sabotage it or leak it to try to make it happen more, you know, increase the chances of it happening. So I, I, I don't know what side the leak will come from, but it should be interesting. Douglas Farah is president of IBI Consultants. They are a limited liability corporation, in case you were wondering. He's a long-term veteran of the Washington Post, where he reported on many stories, including one that became Merchant of Death, Money, Guns, Planes, and the man who makes war possible. Doug, thanks so much. Mike, thank you. It was a pleasure. Appreciate it. And that's it for the Saturday show. Corey Wara is the assistant producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson is the senior producer. I will talk to you Monday.